Uh, my name is Calvin Reed. I'm the senior designer and publisher for the co-editor of PW Comics World, which is PW's online coverage of comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm also the co-host of a weekly podcast called uh, More to Come, uh, along with my co-host, Heidi the Beat McDonald. We don't know her. She's the best comic reporter on the planet. Uh, me, I, you know, I, I do my thing. Um, and we also do it with um, uh, our podcast producer, uh, Kate Simmons. You can find us at publishersweekly.com slash comics. But today we're going to talk about how I got to here. Uh, we've got a wonderful panel, uh, and we're going to talk, they're going to talk about what they do. I mean, I can just say they're day jobs, but they're also, that they do other things, and they make comics, and they make some really good comics, and we're going to learn, learn, learn a little bit about how they got to this point, um, what the effect comics has had on their lives, and we'll talk about their books as well. So, uh, I'm going to introduce our panel. We'll start off to my left. Uh, Amanda Dalimong. I hope I said that correctly. Perfectly. Okay. Um, and, you know, besides being the author of Woman World, coming out from uh, Drawing Order, uh, you're the director uh, at Disney TV Animation. Previously worked at the Cartoon Network. Uh, and Woman World was originally serialized on Instagram. Yeah. And, and the fascinating thing is how these delightful strips became this rich, yeah, now so more helpful. Uh, next to her, uh, Corey Doctorow, uh, a, a blogger, uh, co-editor of Boing Boing, journalist, novelist, uh, author of uh, Pirate Set of Homeland, Walk Away, and many other novels, uh, as well as in real life graphic novel uh, with the artist Jim Wayne. Uh, from first second. And, and to his left, uh, Novel Hawkinson, novelist, uh, author of The Salt Roads, um, Midnight Roberts, uh, Brown Girl in the Ring, and the forthcoming House of Whispers, uh, from Vertigo, with art by Dominique Stanton. Um, let's get started. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, look, the, the, the first thing I'm going to do really is to let you talk about yourselves so that the audience can get it. So, why don't we start with Amanda, and why don't you tell us about your background really as a comics fan, and maybe you could talk a little bit about your day job as well. Sure, uh, But how yeah. you get to um, So, I, uh, I'm from Brampton, Ontario, and I was really into animation as a kid, so I started studying animation at Sheridan College, which is a pretty acclaimed um, animation school. And I had always had my mindset on animation. When I graduated, I was really lucky to have Nickelodeon came out to Sheridan and gave us a talk about how we should consider applying for their internship. So I did, and I got it. And uh, so then I flew out to LA and spent the summer in 2011 at Nickelodeon, had the best time, and decided that's where I wanted to work. And so I was really fortunate enough that the timing worked out. They were looking for storyboard revisionists and I was able to start my first job in animation. I then stayed at Nickelodeon for another five years, and in that time met a lot of artists who would spend their you know, day, day job was storyboarding or art and animation, and then on the side were doing a lot of blog posts or Tumblr, a lot of like web stuff, and I started getting more and more into that, and I started going to conventions with smaller like comic books or just little things I'd put together. Um, eventually I moved over to Cartoon Network where I met even more people who were like coming from a comics background and I started realizing what a what an interesting Venn diagram animation and comics is 
Um, and then I moved over to Disney, and during that time, I had started my uh, comic woman world on Instagram, and within uh, the past year, was fortunate enough to get it published by Drawn and Quarterly, so kind of stumbled into comics, if anything. <laughs> so were you a fan before? Oh, yeah. I was uh, thinking about this question earlier, actually. Um, I think one of the, my big influences um, was Persepolis, um, and I think it's when there's an animated counterpart as well. Um, there's, again, that interesting Venn diagram. Um, it, uh, I kind of got into it from the animated side, so that's one of my like highlights for me. So, certainly Marjorie's a copy. That's a great oh, place to start. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Oh, that's that's you, you weren't necessarily a big comic You know, I, I couldn't say I was. Like, I definitely, like, name-wise, I'm, like, going in backwards and learning names now, but it was something I would mostly learn web comics, if anything. I knew Kate Beaton from online, like, rather than her, like, published work. Okay, let's jump over to Corey. I mean, obviously your, your interest in comics is sort of well-known, but I'm curious to, yeah, tell us more about that. Sure. I, I mean, before I talk about how I got into comics, I, I didn't realize, Aminder, that I was going to be on this panel with you because I read your book, I wrote a review of it before I went on holiday about three weeks ago, and I just copy and pasted your name, which I hadn't heard before, and then we, when we were on the... But your book is so good! Oh my god, you should all go read her book when it comes out. I wrote a review of it. It's amazing. It's wonderful. So... Before I say anything else, so that much. book was so good. Oh my god! Wow. Uh, so that said, I'm so excited. Uh, that said, I feel like um, maybe the subtitle of this panel is "Southern Ontario is a really good place to be from," because yeah, yeah, or or you know, Toronto adjacent. Yeah, uh, and. and like, I had a similar experience in that I had, like, this interest in genre, and then Toronto just happened to have all these amazing institutions that if you're interested in genre, you could then just sort of fall into. So uh, Judith Merrill, who is this wonderful feminist critic and writer and uh, editor, after the Chicago police riots in 1968 said, I'm not raising my children in America. She had recently divorced Frederick Pohl. She took all of their books, moved to Toronto, and started what is now the largest public science fiction reference collection in the world, where she was the, space, where she was the writer in residence. And you could just like show up with a manuscript, as I started doing from about the age of 10, and hand it to her, and she would, she would talk to you about how to make it a better story. And then we also had the world's oldest science fiction bookstore, Baca Books, where I worked with Nalo, and uh, it was full of writers. And when I was 10 years old, I walked into that store, and there was a woman behind the counter named Tanya Huff who just sold her first story. And I, and, she, and I said, what should I read? And she asked me what I liked, and she took me back into the used section and found a copy of Little Fuzzy for a dollar, and she sold it to me. And I came back every week and bought books from her. And when she quit to write full-time, move out to the country with her wife, I got her job and started working in the store. And, and so it was this amazing place to be from and had all these institutions. But I was also not a giant comics person because we had to specialize within my group. You had a baseline of Dungeons & Dragons. But that only <laughs> left you with enough room to either be a deep comics nerd or a big novel nerd. And so I became a big novel nerd, but when I started working at Baca Science Fiction Bookstore, across the street was the Silver Snail, this giant comic store, and we had matching staff discounts. And so, and they would come over and buy books from me, and I got to know which clerks I thought were cool, and so I would go over and say, now you tell me what comics to read, and that's how I became a comics person very relatively late, at kind of 18. Um, 
And, you know, I've always been interested in it, but I'm not the world's most visual person. I actually have very low visual acuity. I miss things other people see. I'm slightly colorblind. I, I can't tell if things are off-center. It drives my wife nuts because she can, like, look across a room at a picture 100 yards away and say it's one degree off true. And, and, uh, and so, uh, although I love comics, I've never been very visual. It wasn't until first I worked with IDW on an adaptation of six of my short stories, and then with First Second on an adaptation of another story with Jen, who did all the heavy lifting, and really that should be uh, Cory Doctor is in Real Life by Jen Wang. Uh, she did all the amazing stuff, and her new book, The Prince and the Dressmaker, yeah. is so good um, that, that, uh, that, I, that I was able to do that. And it was really exciting, and it kind of launched me on a, a different visual world, and, and I ended up working at Imagineering for a while, and, and then... Um, uh, now I've got a picture book coming from First Second, so that's how I kind of yeah, that way. That's my next one. Yeah, it's fun. They keep making you take words out, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Lalo, your background in comics. What about your background in comics? So, I am um, from Caribbean, Jamaica, Trinidad, Guyana. Moved to Canada, uh, to Toronto when I was 16. Lived there for about 35 years before moving to the U.S. about eight years ago. Um, was always a reader. It was always going to be some form of science fiction fantasy. Um, and uh, my my dad was a uh, Shakespearean trained actor, poet, playwright. So I got sort of the classical, the Euro classical stuff. Um, moved to Toronto and discovered Bafta, Bafta books. Um, that that bookstore has supported or helped so many budding Toronto writers support themselves. Because when I quit my job at the Toronto Arts Council after one whole book um, to go and write, um, that was the bookstore that hired me for a time to work. Uh, they found me some hours uh, that kept me going. I had always read comics. I had no idea where I found them because I don't recall such things as comic bookstores at that point in the Caribbean. I'm pretty sure they're there now. Um, but thank heaven for brothers and cousins and, you know, older and younger uh, fellow geeks, because my brother was the one who um, introduced me to Batman, Dark Knight Rises, and Arkham Asylum at a point where I had stopped reading the superhero comics and I read those and thought, whoa, they've changed. There's some teeth to them now. They're dealing with issues like age and madness. Um, so I kept reading comics, discovered graphic novels, sort of moved over to that because I could actually find them in stores like Baffa and uh, the women's bookstore because uh, they had spines now. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I was reading the evolution of the graphic novel starts to walk upright, yes. Yes. And then the interim became a, a published writer uh, of prose and wanted to go into comics at some point, and I remember talking to my agent early on and him saying, and still tease him about it, uh, oh no, you should do it like Neil Gaiman did, start first in prose. And I thought, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> now, the when you tease him about it, he says he meant to say that, but I don't think he <laughs> But I kept up my interest in comics and started learning about how to write them. Mark Asquith. Uh, yeah. read my first effort at comics and basically said there's too many words in it. And boy, was it <laughs> He's the former manager of the Silver Snail, the comic shop where we used to get our staff discounts. Yes, and he was the one who introduced me to Neil Gaiman um, uh, sort of inadvertently. I was at the International Conference of the Fantastic in the Arts. It happens in Florida every year. 
and um, Neil would often go stealth. As stealth as Neil goes anywhere, because he was usually wearing black and, and such shades, and it was Florida. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he came up to me at my first ICFA and said, um, I'm Neil Gaiman. Um, Mark asked, he said, I should, I should get to know you and I should read your stuff. And we kept up a sort of fairly distant but a friendship that way. Then I, I, I met John Jennings, who with Damien Delphi uh, Friday night won the uh, Eisner for the Adaptation of Kindred. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Phenomenal guy. Oh, it's a real sweetheart. We now work at the same university. And we've been working sort of lackadaisically on a project forever, so he's been my informal mentor. Um, so when um, Ellie Pyle of Vertigo, who's no longer Vertigo, contacted me and said they're rebooting The Sandman, um, and Neil has created a new house in the dreaming, and it's run by Elsa the African, West African diaspora goddess of love, would you care to pitch for it? You don't have to ask that. <laughs> I did, and uh, ultimately I ended up uh, having my pitch accepted. So now I'm working. My first real comic is a Sandman book. Yeah. And this is hard to sell. Every time I get to oh, this is so hard because I have a full time job. Um, the little kid voice says, then I'd be okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm also curious, I'm going to stick with it now for just a second. Uh, what, what made you feel you had to, you wanted to do comics? Now, in your case, was it getting this incredible offer? I mean, obviously you were interested in comics, but what made you, you know, feel, you know what, this is something I need to do to add to my, it's, to my creative efforts? It's such a rich medium. I mean, we all know this, we're here. Um, and I had loved it forever. My, my cousin Mark, who's a little bit older than me, and when I was a kid, seemed a lot older than me. Uh, for a while, I was living with him and his mom in Guyana, and he had, had this, Guyana's a country where it's difficult to get anything. It's difficult to get milk, uh, much less comics. But he had Eerie, Plop, Mad Magazine, uh, uh, Vampirella, going back years. So the stuff was always there, and I'd always loved it. So there was no reason once I started writing and writing sort of fantastical work to not want to do it. Um, uh, children's picture books is another thing I, I hope to do at some point if I can maybe more words onto my work. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just always loved it and, and knew that I wanted to do it. I went through a long period of being quite ill, of having um, anemia so bad that I, I couldn't read a sentence, much less write one. And the reading I could still do was comics because the, the visual storytelling, uh, the words sort of are, are buttressing the visual storytelling. You don't need to read the words necessarily. You can still read and, and uh, read a comic. So they're very dear to me. Yeah, let's go to the same thing. For your question for you, Corey, I mean, what made you feel you had to add comics to your, you know, to your bag of tricks? Huh. You know, it, yeah, it's usually like it, it, any medium that isn't prose. It usually starts with having a, an idea that that kind of niggles away at me, and I think about how I might realize it. And so, you know, I have one dumb movie idea, and if someone ever asked me to do a movie, it would be my one dumb movie idea. <laughs> uh, and and with the comics, and particularly with the kids' picture book, the kids' picture book, I really started to 
have this very uh, fertile set of ideas. I've, I've got about 11 sitting in a file. And um, I sent it, I, and I wrote to my agent who has a sub who does picture books, and I said, like, this is just ridiculous, but do you know anyone, like, what, what, how do you write a picture book? <laughs> like, this is my weird idea. And she said, those are really cool ideas. Let's, let's talk to, um, I, well, it's a very long story, but it was Random House originally. And uh, Random House bought it, and they spent a ton of money developing it. They hired an artist, and it was, like, ready to go. And the guy who was my editor was also their head of digital strategy. And um, I thought, and then the contract wasn't coming, and it was, like, taking forever. And they, they, they finally he, he said, can I call you from my personal phone? And he said, now, you, I know you hate DRM with the heat of a thousand suns, and nobody buys electronic picture books. So I'd always just told them we wouldn't do an e-book because Random House has DRM in all of its e-books. And I showed them the pro forma that said the average picture book loses 75 pounds on the e-book after the digital conversion, we never make it back. And uh, they said that if it wasn't in the contract uh, that they wouldn't publish it. So I quit today and I don't work for Random House anymore. And so then it ended up at first second. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was definitely like it was kind of these inspirations out of the blue and, and um, you know, I've, I've got a few other kind of weird, non-traditional media. I, I live with a gaming professional. My wife runs the VR and AR for Disney at the studios. So I live with a gaming professional, and every now and again I'll have a weird idea for a game. And they're all just sort of tucked in a folder, and sometimes, like, the impetus gets so strong that I actually try and realize it, but a lot of them are just there against the day that someone comes along and says, have you ever thought about making a game? And, and you know, I, I might go crack open that folder. So I'm in that Did you answer this? I mean, you, did, you told me you were surrounded by so many comics people, but, but why did you feel like a need that you had to do this then? Um, I think uh, animation is such a... It's, it's, it's a team thing. Um, at no point uh, is, does any one person's voice kind of stand out more than anyone else's. And I had just finished, uh, in 2016, a pilot at Nickelodeon, and it didn't move forward, and... Uh, I felt like I had to take a step back and rediscover what my uh, voice was before I started getting notes from executives or anyone else. I had to know what my voice was just on its own. And so uh, comics was a really nice and approachable way to do that, especially web comics. Um, and now, like, now that I feel like I have a good hold on my voice, I feel like it just makes being part of a team that much stronger when you know what you bring. Um, so... I just needed it at that time in my life. I That's really, what you needed. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay with you and get to the point that I think everybody that's read your book wants to know. Like, and, and I sent you like this goofy question, but so I'm going to read it. Okay, you created this richly thematic graphic novel out of short, funny comic strips, lighthearted feminist series, and savvy reading of history. How'd you do that? <laughs> but tell us about the book too. For those who may not have read it, tell us about Woman World. Um, so Woman World is a uh, is a graphic novel that I started online on Instagram um, and is a very slice-of-life approach to a post-apocalyptic world in which men have gone extinct. Um, but it's very, like, utopian. Uh, and we follow a small... <laughs> who knew? Utopia? Utopia? Well, Utopian, accidental. Um, it's a, I, we follow a small village inside in, in that world, um, and a small group of women uh, dealing with having to rebuild um, society. Uh, and it's 
just small, maybe max 10 panels each comic, and they've all been put together with new content in the book now. But the whole feminism approach, I honestly... So when I came up with the idea, I went to the Women's March, and I was uh, surprised at the amount of uh, hate there was, even just for that march. Um, There's just a real problem with the word feminism and bringing that up and the the emotions apparently attached to that word. So I wanted to draw something which represented to me what feminism feels like, which is just having a good time. (laughs) (laughs) So I accidentally did something larger than I had even planned to. Uh, well, it's an actually delightful book without, 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 and you'll learn something. You'll learn something. Um, Corey, tell us about in real life and how how that got started. Sure. Uh, so I, I mentioned that I, I live with a games professional. Uh, my wife used to play Quake for England, and then she did be games for the BBC and stuff. And she had gone to a game developers conference and came back, and there are these crazy stories because this guy who was kind of a habitual liar and known to be a habitual liar had given this presentation saying. I have set up in like Ciudad Juarez or some some border town sweatshops where I pay kids low wages to play EverQuest all day to amass virtual gold, and then I sell it to lazy Americans. And so I wrote this short story that sort of posited that this was that he wasn't lying. Uh, and it, the the interesting thing that chimed with me about it is I had been a kind of Silicon Valley person. I moved there during the dot com bubble. And I watched all these colleagues of mine who were um, technologists become super infuriated about so, so their quote unquote their jobs going to India, and I was like, wait a second, no one in India took your job. Your white boss sent your job there. Like, what are you talking about, Indians? Like, you don't need to be pissed off at someone six thousand miles away from here. I can show you who you should be pissed off with. He sits in the next room, right? And. Um, and they were like, but, but you know, how could we do something about this? And growing up in Toronto, I'd, I'd watched after NAFTA, I'd watched um, the auto workers uh, uh, become super xenophobic about Mexican auto factories. And their argument had been, uh, you know, yes, historically, the way that we stopped our, our unions from being smashed was by um, finding a common cause. You know, it was the thing that eventually ended the, the breaking of the trade unions and made them ascend. It was that when they when like the Poles stopped letting the Italians break the, the strike and the Italians stopped letting the, the Germans break the strike and instead they realized they were all workers and that was their common cause in particular when certain letting African Americans into the unions and that was, that was how the union became strong but they said well we could never do that in Mexico right it, it would be dangerous for us to go to Mexico they have barbed wire around their factories how could we organize a union in Mexico and I was like let me tell you about the, the sit down strike and you know uh, um you know, all the times that the Pinkertons came and just shot everyone. Like, your forefathers did things that were way more dangerous than organizing Mexican workers in Mexico and finding common cause with them. But I was like, to these these people who were complaining about, about Indian tech workers, I was like, you don't even have to go to Bangalore to organize with those people. They're on the same internet as you, right? <laughs> and they all speak better English than you do. So you, and, and so then I had this flash that put these two together, which is what if trade unions used video games to organize workers' vanguards in developing countries uh, among people who uh, play games and could outmaneuver their bosses because their bosses hired them to play games but didn't know shit about playing games. Mm. And so I, I, I wrote this short story 
about Mexican gold farmers uh, and Americans, Americans who are hired to be Pinkertons to kill them in the game, and about how those Americans find uh, common cause with them and end up uh, in, excuse me, end up in solidarity with them. And then that turned into a novel called For the Win, which is about uh, kids in uh, Mumbai and Singapore and China and America finding common cause and, and organizing a workers' vanguard in China that leads a um, uh, trade union, independent trade union uprising in China. And then that turned into In Real Life with Jen Wang, whose family is uh, uh, Chinese. And so it, she did all the amazing heavy lifting and the adaptation and brought a whole bunch of stuff to it. You know, I'm, 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 all, I'm my dad was a, a refugee, but not from China, and I don't have much to say about that experience. And so she brought a bunch of stuff to it that is so good, and she's so smart and amazing and brilliant that it really um, it became a synthesis of the, the, those two different visions, the, you know, her life experience and, and mine and, you know, the kind of weird cerebral place I live and, like, the, the amazing graphic visual stuff she does. Great, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and and, 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 and it, what's also interesting, uh, uh, what I love about the book, I mean, is because you, in this gaming world, you, you know, it, so much of the speculative fiction comics is about moving through portals. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting, as we move into this fantasy portal that comes to life on the page, uh, all of these labor relations still exist sure. within them. Well, and there's this, like, and there's also this, like, weird intrinsic problem with games as a, as a, a democratic medium because uh, you know the game the pitch of multiplayer online games from second life to like the, the super commercial ones like like Warcraft and whatever is you can come and like be a citizen come live in our world right but games like even more so than like Facebook Facebook doesn't have a constitution and has terms of service that no one's ever read but games are like a thousand times worse because in addition to the terms of service there's something intrinsically undemocratic about a game because the game master, does, you don't get a vote on what the game master is going to do from moment to moment. Your democratic option is to decide who will be your game master. But once they're there, if the game master says there's 20 orcs, you don't get to say, like, we're going to hold a vote and make sure it's only nine, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's a bit like comedy, right? You don't get to vote on when the punchline is going to be delivered by the person on stage, right? Like, once you're there, you submit yourself to this authority. And there is an intrinsic tension in telling people to come live, and in particular assigning real economic value to their activities in the game, right? Like amassing virtual fortunes that, um, in, you know, a lot of the free-to-play games, their, their explicit strategy when they started off, it's become a lot more implicit now, was um, we have two groups of players, kids who don't have any money and grown-ups who have a lot of money. We will get the kids who don't have any money to do repetitive in-game tasks to generate, uh, to, to get rare items and wealth that they will flip to the rich people who have lots of money, the rich old people who have lots of money, who don't want to bother getting good at the game and just want to buy their way to the top of the heap. And this dynamic will just keep everybody playing, right? Everybody will be excited to play and it'll create a pipeline and whatever. And as soon as you're doing that, as soon as you're like, like actually explicitly creating child labor sweatshops <laughs> in order to help old rich people cheat, um, the fact that you're not a democracy suddenly becomes like really salient, right? The lack of democratic legitimacy in your rulemaking takes on a whole bunch of st- potential storytelling elements, if not things that like we should be concerning ourselves with, we should also be concerning ourselves with them, that uh, made for, I think, good fiction. I love you so much. Aww, <laughs> too. We also used to work at the same reference library together, the same re- library together. Yeah. 
So now, um, tell us about House of Whispers. And and I'm and I, and I you know I asked you this the other day. I, I'm really fascinated to see how this world of Neil Gaiman's mythology connects with your interest in mythology and folklore. Yes. Um, um, and of course, there's not a whole lot I can tell you about the content of House of Whispers because I do want to keep this game. Yes, there is some stuff that you can find uh, um, on the web right now. That's the cover, and the artist, who's, and this is Domo Stanton's work, Domi uh, mm. Stanton, who's doing, who's here this weekend, who's mm. doing the interior pages, and my god, I love his work. When they first sent me the, the drawings and stuff, and they said, well, he's done children, he's done little girl, and he's done a Deadpool. And I said, yeah, that's strange. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really have this panel, but there's some really just gorgeous, striking, um, imaginative uh, illustrations in this, in this book. Yes, yes well, I, I have a thing for um, uh, black diaspora history and for mermaids who, who are um, often deities in West African um, uh, religions and folklore, uh, and so they're everywhere, and I've, I've, I've been sort of informally studying folklore since I read um, of, of so many different cultures, um, and a lot of my fiction draws on uh, West African diasporic religious beliefs, so I'm talking about a living religion but making fantasy from it. Um, so there's always that tension between, I have to remember that, that these are real people's real form of worship, and yet, I'm a fiction writer, and the job of fiction is to mess with stuff. So, <laughs> so I, I try to sort of balance. But um, I think I was one of the writers that Neil suggested uh, that vertical approach when um, they began to work on rebooting the Sandman. And what he'd done was um, about six lines of here's what's happening in the dream right now. Um, they ended up with four authors, four different books which are going to be serialized. The first ones come out in September. I believe there's an intro uh, that they all wrote a part of that's coming out in um, August. Um, so when they said it's LGB, I thought, well, this is my book. <laughs> it's going to be my book because I know so much about the story and I love it. So I make, I make uh, such dolls that are black mermaids. I'm just, it's, my house, my, my poor partner has been very forbearing because it's wall to wall black mermaids. Um, <laughs> not that he's complaining. <laughs> so um, we had a writer's summit in January. Uh, Vertigo, Pew, the four writers, Sai Spurrier, Dan Waters, Kat Howard, me, uh, Neil, um, whole Vertigo team and Vertigo editors to New Orleans. And, and uh, it was the, the day this year that New Orleans froze over, and I think it was my fault, because I'm a Canadian, so I, <laughs> I brought the winter to New Orleans. But walking through New Orleans and, and hanging out with these brilliant people, editors and writers, everybody, and talking about these books, I realized that if I was going to write about Elsbilly, it had to be New Orleans. Um, New Orleans being such a stronghold of uh, the, the, the Buddhist side of, of Yoruba worship. Um, she lives there. I mean, I was there two weeks ago and I went walking through the streets and I found a gate that I thought, well, that would be look good for one of the houses I'm using and that boat because it has the symbol for it has to be done to open into the gate. It, it's just New Orleans. Um, so that's what ended up happening. 
And uh, the story starts, I think, in the world and in Elsie's uh, lower down in her domain. Um, and she's having um, a party, which is you know, what any celebration or any worship celebration kind of is. So she's having a party, and something happens, and her house goes, uh, it's a houseboat, goes crashing through something and ends up in the dreaming next to Kate and Abel's houses. And things ensue. In the world, the, um, the girl you see in pink there, the, the older one, um, has fallen ill, and when she wakes up, she has a disorder that nobody can um, explain and it's catching. So I brought those, I'm bringing those two things together. Issue is, uh, Virgil asked me for outlines. I'm a pantser, not a plotter. <laughs> the way I do the research to figure out what the book is is by writing it. I can try to plot ahead of time, but there's so many possibilities that I end up with garbage. And they kept asking me for outlines of the tall book, so I finally said, wrote something and said, here you go, I'm not very good at this. And they got back to me and said, yeah, we see what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> How about you just write it? Because we know you can write it because I've written the intro and I had already written the you could write. Yeah. All right. I think it's the um, movement of people from movie studios into all the other media. I had a novella I wrote where they wanted a beat sheet for 30,000 oh, words. On. And they were going <laughs> to send it to a writer's room and give me notes on every beat. And I'm like, Did, you realize 30,000 words is like 11 hours of TV. Like nobody would ever do that with something that long and complicated. But they're like, we have one hammer and I see you brought some nails. <laughs> We're going to get to some questions from the audience in a second. I maybe have a couple more questions. Um, I want to jump to Amanda uh, again. Um, now, you started online. Uh, we all know um, being online can be kind of hazardous place for, for women. Uh, you, you're already responding to you know, the, the Women's March, a, no, a, a glorious event. And you know, there's some naysayers, believe it or not. So, any problems? Uh, any um, thoughts? I uh, I think Instagram is still a pretty happy place. Yeah. Still, um, I have avoided Twitter. Uh, I don't even bother with Tumblr. Um, so I just started in the happiest place, and people have still been good. I got a lot of hate on the first comic, but it's because the first panel of the comic starts with the men are extinct. <laughs> a lot of uh, men thought that meant the women had killed the men and I was like whoa yeah straight up I was like that is not where I was coming from that would not have been my first take on it um, so there was a lot of hate for um, yeah just not misunderstandings but I have noticed there was definitely a couple of comics where um, people were being like really mean then later came back to defend my comics to other new new like me new bullies because they were like no you don't understand you have to go back <laughs> it was cool to see the transition uh, but a lot of times when people say mean things I'm just like that's probably a bot yeah. I don't know that's my <laughs> assumption now <laughs> a misogynist bot yeah <laughs> um, Okay, like I said, we're going to get to some questions in a second. Uh, Corey, just, uh, I mean, you, you, uh, uh, you mentioned a bit about, you know, you've got to take out a lot of the words. But, but the writing, 
writing novels and, and writing comics. I mean, what, what, what can you tell us about that? Um, so I, I, the thing I've always uh, been really interested in and that I struggle to try and find a happy medium with, and it's because of Scott here, is trying to figure out as a writer what I can do with panels, because that's a thing writers don't get. We get scene breaks and we get the other stuff, but we don't get panels. And, and um, the place where I, I am probably most comics-ish in my writing is trying to give some suggestions without ever trying to tell anyone anyone's granny how to suck eggs. I'm like, it might be good if, the, if these panels did this because this is kind of cool. With the kids' picture book, though, because it's either, it's all, the kids' picture books are all 24 pages long. Um, all the words have to be in black because the way you make money on a kids' picture book is you sell it in 11 languages and then you do the first three colors of the print run in, uh, in one factory and then you split the run and do the black separately and that's where all the words go in and you sell it you know the Italian edition the Spanish edition whatever so like that's the only constraint but you have either spreads or you have singles and so I had to figure like that I ended up putting a lot of decision making into you know I, I, I made prototypes and kind of thought about the dramatic tension of it it helped that I raised a kid right so that like I, I there is a lot of like are you going to turn the page? When are you going to turn the page? What happens when you turn the page? And those revelations. And actually having done that as kind of a dry run, it's made me think that the next time I come back to comics, I'll be a little more confident about it. But, you know, I am but an egg. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the same question for you. I mean, so far, <laughs> yeah, so what far. have you discovered? <laughs> oh, I discovered that writing something serialized is a whole lot different than writing a novel. <laughs> but because what will happen is the first few will be out um, while I'm still working on the remaining ones. So if in the first few I set something up that's just not tenable, I'm stuck with it. Oh, yeah. And you'll all be watching me flail. So <laughs> that's been uh, a bit daunting. Um, luckily, the editors at Vertigo um, are Maggie Howell, Molly Mahan, Amadeus, surname I am forgetting, but they are brilliant and um, have been making suggestions that all through it that, you know, I'm kind of right to you send me back your editorial notes and I, I go hoof and I walk around the block and just fume for a minute and I come back and think, crap, you're right. Um, and so there's been a lot of crap, you're right moments. Um, so there's that. That and dealing with interiority. As a prose writer, um, I, I try to keep interiority down to like a word if I can. Um, and editors kept saying, no, you need to let them know what's happening. And somebody suggested captions, and I'd forgotten captions. So these, it feels kind of illicit to be able to put in a caption exactly what's happening. Huh. <laughs> and, that's, and that's been fun. It's also helping me with plotting, I think. Um, because you have to know, you know, so that you leave something on a note where people are going to want to buy the next issue. Yeah. Uh, now it's your turn. Let's ask some questions. We're going to try to alternate and make sure everybody gets a chance. So, women, uh, any questions? Women, non-binary. Yeah. So this is this is uh, this was my suggestion. Is that yes, I do this in my talks, alternating between people who identify as female or non-binary, yeah. people who identify as male or non-binary. We can give it. We can wait a minute while folks yeah. gather their thoughts as well. Yeah. As an educator, I so often see when I do something like this. Um, that the women wait almost for permission and often end up not asking the sure. questions they want to ask. So, but we've got a fabulous panel. How often do you get a chance? Bingo. You were talking about one of the 
again, where could you repeat the question, question too? I just want to make oh, sure. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so she's asked what other differences there are between writing prose and writing and writing, and that's stuff that's serialized um, and uh, that's comic. I'm working with artists, uh, so there's not only those uh, uh, work. There's the the letterer. There's the person doing the the, um, the covers. There's the person doing the covers. So I end up having to give instructions. So I actually have to imagine harder. Um, and things like expressions, um, I will usually convey expressions in very different ways in prose. I'll, I'll do it sort of based on sort of bodily sensations, whereas I have to give Joe some sense of what expression I want. And sometimes I'm saying things like, he's not looking at his face like, I've got that book at home and I'm glad to see you. And Joe does a thing in his magic, I have no idea how he does that. So there's that, and, and realizing that other people's visions will be slightly different than yours. So some things I imagine uh, doubles come back and they're better. They're bigger, they're grander. Uh, or sometimes there's things that I have thought to explain and they're, they're just that little bit wrong. So I'm learning how to work with the group because there's also the editors. And there's also, you know, do you see that don't want to lose when you have a comic and I don't want to lose when you have a comic dream. <laughs> so there's that collaborative thing that's different. Also having to be writing the next one while I'm rewriting the one before. That's a trick. Those who identify as dead. We have a question? Yes? No? Come on. Yes, I see. Okay. Yeah, and you know, and I neglected to get a mention the handwriting from this work. Yeah. Um, I see you in the back too. We'll get we'll get around to you. Uh, Corey, yours is the only book I've read in real life. Um, I was just wondering, it's kind of a uh, high concept. Do kids get it? Uh, the, the politics of it and stuff? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the interesting thing about um, like trade union struggles or, or kind of class war is that it's, it really is easy to understand being someone who is powerless uh, among people who, through no virtue of their own, have a lot of power over you and <laughs> whose orders you have to instantly follow, but when enough of you get together, you can drive them bananas. Like, that's, that's our, that's like, it's not a hard pitch. And the thing I was going to mention is that, like, so I was raised by, uh, by, by trade unionist, uh, Marxist. My dad's a, a Trotskyist. And, you know, he was my first exposure to comics because he grew up on Conan comics. But when I was a kid, he used to retell me Conan stories, except he had a trio called Harry, Larry, and Mary. And, and they were just like the plots of his half-remembered Conan stories, except at the end, instead of like having conquered the evil vizier, establishing themselves on the throne, they would create workers' cooperatives. <laughs> and uh, those are exciting stories. They're, they're, they're really good. No, it's like I've had no problem. It's middle grade kids totally get it. Um, it's it's weird how easy it is for middle grades kids to understand. Remember, some of the early trade unionists were middle grades aged, right? I mean, some of the early unions were, were their vanguards were children, right? So it's not it's not um, a huge stretch. And particularly, like, when you're combining it with questions about, like, authoritarianism and uh, digital networks that are presided over by people who are unaccountable to you and see you as a kind of ambulatory wallet, uh, th that's really, um, I think kids totally get that, you know. All right. A question from uh, someone identifies as a uh, woman. Yes? Mm -hmm. It's Sunday at Comic-Con. I'm always 
Well, I know there's another question. It was a question in the back. Uh, yeah, you want to use the microphone? Sure. Uh, first off, I'm really struck by how the running theme and a lot of your personal stories and how you came to love this art is how local the origins of that are. Um, not just the Ontario angle, um, but in the kind of open community art spaces that are now disappearing um, and need to be protected. I think you guys are all in proof of that. Um, my question is regarding the idea of imposter syndrome. The little voice that Alan mentioned in the back of your head that says, why and how am I here? around the very idea of tackling something like writing your first comic or coming into a new medium. Um, and I was curious if each of you has had experiences with something like that and how you deal with it, because it seems like it's a huge hurdle that many of us have to overcome. So this is to all the panels? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, and uh, also, Corey, where did you get those orange classes? Because i got to get them. Yeah. <laughs> I might get one, too. Yeah. <laughs> a trendsetter. Yeah. Do you um, want to go? Uh, oh. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I feel like you should first answer the class. Oh, uh, <laughs> reflecticals.com, Sky Scott uh, Urban. We've got to start with the important stuff first. <laughs> um, I, for me personally, I don't know if it ever goes away. Um, I still constantly feel like I can feel that imposter syndrome. I, there's degrees of it, I guess. Um, sometimes my confidence will will overpower and um, will speak louder, but it, I feel like it's always there in the back nagging, and I think the only solace I have is knowing that almost everyone has it. <laughs> yeah, and I'm gonna be a, a kind of a counterexample, and I think this is where I have so much to thank my parents for, because both creative people, uh, so I grew up in the arts, I grew up amongst artists of various disciplines and media, um, and, and very political people, many of the artists that were my, my parents' friends. So the idea that anybody can make art is kind of ingrained and helps so damn much. Because the thing that, I mean, now that I, I became a professor eight years ago, and that's when the imposter syndrome kicked in. Um, and the thing that a lot of people don't realize is they, they're, they're waiting to feel like a writer or an artist. It, it never happens. You feel like yourself when you're just doing this thing. And we all feel like that. There's no, oh, I'm a writer now and my identity has changed. You know, it, it has and what you do may have changed. And if you're doing it, you're not an imposter. So uh, I, we've had our please wrap up. I'll answer real, as quick as I can. So for me, it's, it's tied up to this idea uh, of being able to write any time, which was really key. I started selling novels when I took on a role as a, as a European director of an NGO, and I was tra traveling 27 days a month. I'd like stop plugging in my fridge because it was costing me 10 bucks a month to freeze ice cubes. And, and so I had to be able to write like every day, even when I was exhausted and in a strange place and like crouched under the water fountain in an airport lounge with next to the only plug and stuff. And what I realized, I'd written enough by that point that um, when I, looked back on stuff, there was stuff that I wrote that I felt was really good and stuff that I wrote that I felt needed work, and there were days when I felt I was writing well and days when I felt I was wasn't, but they, they were totally dis disconnected phenomena, that uh, how I felt about my writing, whether I felt good or bad about it, was much more related to like my blood sugar and stress level than the objective quality of the prose. And so it's a kind of cognitive behavioral therapy-ish kind of distance that you acquire because you still feel like you're writing terrible work on days when it feels terrible, but you know what that feeling comes from. 
And so you can kind of take the step back and say, I will write the words that feel terrible. If they are indeed terrible, there's time to fix them in post. But, but you know, I, 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 I am incapable in the moment of judging whether it's terrible. And um, that was like a, the most powerful revelation in my life. And also the thing that made writing curiously anhedonic, like I don't get as much pleasure from it because I know the days when it feels like I've been touched by the hand of the divine and I'm writing that it's just like my endocrine system is rewarding me and <laughs> I, I'm probably writing stuff that's no better and no worse than anything else I wrote. I mean, most things are average. That's why we call it average, right? <laughs> yeah, I think you have this idea that, that, that you get to a point where death is bruised flowing everything your pen. <laughs> right, yes. I used to have no, no, first drafts are always crap. Second drafts are crap with, you know, some diamonds in them. It, it's never going to be this effortless thing. Yeah, if I can add to that, it has helped me to um, to break apart my process into kind of like an assembly line, and the first step is to just get all the ideas out, um, and then to do the editing, the judging later. That's like one of the last steps. <laughs> I, I, I want to nerd out about your book for a second. <laughs> so, like the story, you mentioned that the stories were like no more than nine things. They're what they are, like without. I just want to be your hype man for a second. So some of them are like like one panel, like perfect jokes, and some of them are like four panel, and they're like somewhere between dikes to watch out for and, and better for better for worse, and some of them are longer arcs. And like what's amazing, having gone back and read all the Instagrams after I read the book, is that you figured out a way to take these like completely um, heterogeneous forms, but build this story out of it whose arc is like such a good story arc. Like it's got a beginning and a middle and an end and characters we care about and they develop and it's so good. <laughs> wow. Oh my God, so it's good. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> well, you know, Do we have time for one for Ivy? I don't know if we have time for another question, but we have time for a response from you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so much like praise going on. <laughs> uh, this is so wonderful. I mean, so much. No, it's so um, good. I, I don't know if there was ever really... Um, I had an, a rough idea of what I wanted to do, uh, but a lot of help came from also from just drawn and quarterly and mm. knowing how to edit or also place things on a page in the proper way to tell a story differently from how it appears online. The swipe feature on Instagram is very different from doing a spread. Um, so it's a lot of help. I get a lot of people I know to look over the things I do, and I have an entire history of working in board-driven animation, which is... Spongebob, Adventure Time, we write and draw. So I've had to do it for 11 minutes for so long that it was really nice to do it for a year. Mm. And I think on that note, we've kind of learned a lot about how all of you got to here. Uh, From to, Canada. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a big round of applause for our panelists. Oh, yeah, we're doing a signing in half an hour in the autographing area if you want to come and buy our stuff. Uh, my things are at Drawn and Quarterly at 1629. I'm going to go do a signing right now. Oh, cool. Come down to the end of the panel. We'll get a big group photo. Is Women's World, like, actually a physical book now? It is. I mean, I got the art, but I didn't know it was out yet. I didn't know either. I didn't know it was going to be No, it's cool.